You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Jonathan Robinson Lees. Jarrah Ferris Smith is a musician with a mission to share stories and messages through his powerful lyrics and intricate guitar playing. Growing up in Emi Plains, Jarrah's alternative, loving, and supportive upbringing instilled a sense of exploration and a passion for music. Despite facing challenges and battles with a cavernous mind, Jarrah has shaped his deep thinking into songs of empathy and compassion. Philosophical, self-aware and humble, Jarrah aims to inspire through his lyrical nows. Jarrah joins us for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Jarrah, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jarrah, you described to me that your career, um, that you're a singer-songwriter chasing your dreams and giving yourself the life you desire it's as much a spiritual journey as a physical one, and you're learning as you go. I think that's a great perspective on life, mate. How long have you kind of had that approach? Um, to be honest, it's only been fairly recent. Um, my girlfriend Jacqueline has had a huge effect on that. I, I was sort of fairly stagnant in what I was doing. I was fairly um, locked into being in the same place all the time, and then up until about three and a bit years ago and then from there like I was trying to do my music as a as a full-time kind of thing around Sydney but I'd never really thought about sort of making it any bigger or covering a larger area um so yeah I'd say her influence on that was massive um sort of took me out of that comfort zone of just being around the mountains or being around Sydney so yeah and that spiritual journey you talk about, did you find there was almost like a new wave of energy that came with that? You kind of unlocked this whole another part of your world that you didn't know existed? Yeah, I discovered a lot of people who had travelled a similar path, like um, a lot of musicians, but also um, surfers, um, different people who tap into that mindset side of things to... Um, to achieve what they want to achieve and for me I grew up very um, very anxious very um, suffering from like severe anxiety since I was very little and even now I still struggle with it um, but I'm learning how to keep that fear to a minimum and push myself in areas and get to the places I want to get to so yeah it's, it's, it's a fine balance but I, I think I'm slowly getting there and you mentioned your, your upbringing. You grew up in Emu Plains, just outside of Penrith. Um, you went to school in the Blue Mountains. What was your childhood like for you? My childhood was great. I, I had a really cool childhood. I, so I, I mentioned before, I, from a very young age, um, I had severe anxiety, um, unprecedented from every doctor or psychologist that I went and spoke to. Um, my mum was just telling me last night, we were just reminiscing about some s- stories, somewhat tragic stories of my mental health as a child, but she said that I, I went to a, um, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I think it was a psychologist this one, when I was four. And firstly, that doesn't ha- or f- happen very often, but I was struggling with my anxiety and um, I went there and she looked at my mum after the thing and went, Jarrah thinks about things that no child this age should think about. And um, there's an example of that in a poem that I wrote when I think I was three. And it's, I've, I've got it on my Instagram or something, I've found it. But it's like, it questions life, it questions death. It, so it was a very much an overthinking situation. And that's something that's sort of followed my life throughout. But in terms of my actual upbringing was fantastic. I lived in a very 
open family who discussed all different things. Um, my dad worked in the city, but was sort of a um, a uh, urban hippie sort of. Um, with we were taught Buddhism at a young age. Sort of, we used to sit around and meditate as a family, um, which like at the time was pretty mad. I didn't really think much of it until going to school and saying that that's not really what everyone did. Um, and yeah, so we had this little oasis. It was like a like a little rainforest in our suburban backyard at Emu Plains, which typically isn't the most um, sort of um, bushy area and whatnot. And that's why I think we always associated ourselves more with the mountains. Um, yeah, we had, yeah I had it great. We were always outside. Um, wooden toys until I was like five years six years old and I never really watched TV or anything like that so it was like really um, an organic young life yeah the only issue I ever had was that underlying anxiety and fear but um, with the support of my mum particularly I was able to sort of find the right path on recovering from that so you touch on that anxiety and we'll come back to that later on did you know I guess at the time that like did you feel different to other kids did you know maybe your thought process was a bit different yeah I even to this day I always um sort of tend to um be drawn to older more mature people than my actual age group um just because I feel like I can have conversations on a different wavelength. And it's changing now, given sort of in my mid-twenties, there's now people younger than me who can still have that conversation. But, for example, during um, schooling, there's a relative immaturity at whatever age I was at. And then, so I'd sort of search for something a bit more. Um, I knew that I overthought things and thought things on a different level to what I probably... Well, I don't, I don't really like the idea of saying what I should because, you know, if you can think on a different level, then you're beauty. But I guess um, it wasn't necessarily positive things. It was running my, my mind into the ground, essentially, where it would get me stuck in some sort of rut. So I did know that I was experiencing different things to what the majority of people would experience. But I was also assured that there were anxieties within other people that they wouldn't necessarily show either. And if you knew, like, it was sort of like I had to, I had to tell people before they really understood what was going on. Um, you could probably tell if you analysed it, but most people didn't. And did it inhibit your ability to kind of to, to play with other kids, to hang out with other kids? Were you quite reserved or yeah. the element of freedom and venture still was a big part of your childhood? Um, no, I was quite reserved. I've always been quite reserved. And I think that's why it's so fantastic to have met someone like Jacqueline who pushes my comfort zone to a point where I can like discover new things. Um, but I, didn't, I never really had any issues with like making friends or or hanging out with people or whatever. Um, I've always sort of had the ability to morph my sort of thought in a, in a certain conversation or whatever with different people to be able to communicate with them well. Um, so, for example, like whether it was talking with the boys at cricket about, you know, what guys at cricket talk about that we're all not allowed to speak about outside of the cricket circles or you know, talking in depth with people about mindfulness and things like that, I can sort of chop and change depending on the situation. So I learned that at a young age that what I necessarily felt naturally wanted to talk about wasn't necessarily what everyone else was going to want to chat about. So. But you were still quite self-aware that you could kind of pick up on cues with other people and you could move yourself from yeah, conversation yeah, to conversation. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I, I didn't actually struggle much on the... Um, sort of social front of it that I can remember, especially like from school. Um, yeah, I didn't really have too many issues there. I, I think I kind of like being in a situation where I can morph into um, a conversation of whatever sort of fits because um, it gets me out of my own head. So, yeah. 
you mentioned that for you, the, your upbringing was kind of organic, you know, you were able to kind of do the things you wanted to do. Was that something deliberate that your parents instilled in you, the ability to explore and to, to push the boundaries? Yeah, I think so. I think they, um, yeah, I think they wanted to incorporate that in all of me and my siblings' um, lives, I think. Um, an open-mindedness was something that that they had taken upon themselves from when they were younger like um, they sort of got married fairly early and then moved out fairly young as well and did um, just carve their own path a little bit Um, doing like going vegetarian at that time was something that wasn't necessarily that um, uh, well observed Um, so yeah they, they sort of carved their own path and I think they wanted to do that for us as well and just a freedom to be who we wanted to be. Do you think that's important looking at society nowadays that maybe we've tried to structure too much? Everything's quite structured, it's all time bound. Do you think we need to kind of reinstill that sense of just that willingness to go and explore and to fall over and to fail and to learn from that? Yeah, I think so. I think I think there are parts of society now who are going back towards that sort of mindset because I think for, we've been in a very um, self-deprivating sort of pattern for the last however many years, decades really, where everything is getting more and more refined. And I think even now there are aspects of life that are more refined than ever and are sort of conforming to what society thinks is normal. But I believe there's a bit of a split happening at the moment where there are a lot more people who are thinking more outside the box, doing what they want to do and making a life out of it. Even doing, like yourself doing this podcast um, might not be, 20 years ago, even though podcasting wasn't around, it wouldn't have been something that people would have been like, oh yeah, that's great, use your spare time to do that. You know what I mean? They would have sort of pushed it down to a point and and not allowed you to have that creative freedom because that's your way of creating is doing interviews and, and, you know, bringing awareness to different things, different people's stories. Um, And, yeah, I think as a whole, society for a while tended to push those creative endeavours away, whereas now I think there's a, a push to bring that back. Jerry, you first went to music classes at the age of two, uh, started learning guitar chords at the age of eight. What was it about music that drew you in and, and drew your love? I, the funny thing about music for me, I think, is... So, I, yes, I went to these class things when I was very young, but it's not really what you'd think of a music class as. A, it was sort of this interactive, just hit everything, um, strum anything... It was just chaos, basically. Just kids in a room um, and this one teacher lady and we'd do these weird dance things to certain songs that she'd come up with. and It was like there was no theory to any of it from what I can remember. It was just fun. It was just like give this a whack, see what it sounds like, you know, things like that. It's interesting there just to jump in. It kind of goes back to our point before that you can set up an opportunity but the ability to explore is so important for young kids of all ages just to go and learn what different things sound like, to feel what different things feel like as well. Yeah, like there were, there were lessons within it. For example, um, there was a song she used to sing called Syncopated Cyril and it was all about syncopation within music. Now, to this day, I probably couldn't give you the perfect description of what syncopation is. However, that's what she was trying to teach, but nobody really took any notice of it and I don't think she really cared. It was more just getting kids into creating. And from that point forward, I've every time I've tried to do some form of structured musical learning, I just I get so bored so quickly and I just go off on a tangent. So I tried to do some guitar lessons when I was probably ten. Eight, nine, ten, so uh, when, when I was sort of 
seven or eight ish somewhere there I started just strumming my dad's guitar and just mucking around on it a bit and then I thought oh, I better do some lessons and I probably only lasted about six months and I just got a little bit of an idea but I don't know I always just wanted to be creating something as opposed to playing somebody else's things um, so I'd sort of start on a song that somebody else had written and then I'd wind up just coming up with something completely different and sort of that seemed to be the pattern and yeah even now like I obviously play covers um, for my gigs and when I'm learning one of those it actually takes me a while to learn it mainly because like to learn it properly I can sort of play it by reading it fairly straight away if I know the song but to actually learn it takes a while because I'm always just taking that idea and then taking it somewhere else and doing my own thing with it so yeah and was it your parents, did they have a particular love of music that they wanted to, to provide that opportunity to you or they saw that it was something you were interested in? Um, my dad used to play music a lot um, through his family within um, concert bands and like school band style um, things. He was a saxophone player. Um, and then he was big time into blues rock and jazz, um, jazz in particular. So he sort of, his form of rebellion from doing the very, very organised concert band sort of thing was to do jazz and blues rock. And like he was in a um, in a um, Blues Brothers style like band with the sunnies and the hats and playing that sort of stuff. And that was always around. Was his sophisticated jazz stuff um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Steely Dan but they're like a just ultra sophisticated band from the I think maybe started in the late 60s definitely 70s 80s and it's just like stuff that could fit in today it was very forward thinking that's basically all he listens to um, because he just loves the perfection of it um, so I got that side of things from him and my mum was very much into um, a combination of um, things like Ella Fitzgerald, um, Billie Holiday, sort of that really old school sort of mainly, oh no, she listened to some crooners and things like that as well. So it was all that sort of Sinatra, um, all of that sort of stuff. Then um, also country music. Um, the old storytelling country um, came from her as well. And then I remember in sort of my childhood times, it were things like Nora Jones and Jack Johnson were her two main sort of current artists. Were there particular artists that you recall listening to? Like I throw back to my childhood, dancing around the land room to Queen, Daddy yeah. Cool, uh, Super Tramp. Were there kind of <clears throat> bands that resonated with your childhood? Yeah, definitely Steely Dan if I was anywhere with my dad in the car. Um, Michael Franti and Spearhead was another one that he liked. He liked his writing. Um, and Silverchair, they, he liked their stuff as well. So a little bit of a... They were the in-car with my dad music. With my mum, always in the car was 88.0 Country FM or something like that. Um, cool Country Radio, that's what it was called. Uh, cool country radio that's how the <laughs> thing would go um, so we, that was always in the car but then at home on like the home thing it was always a mixture of like the commitments um, Nora Jones Jack Johnson Jack Johnson was a little bit later with Nora Jones and then also the old um, Rat Pack sort of time period and then also Ella Fitzgerald and people like that so yeah, it was, it was cool. It was quite an eclectic little group. I mean, it went everything from um, sort of Ella Fitzgerald to to Silverchair, Daniel Jones rocking it out in Newcastle. So it was very random. It's a good spectrum. Yeah, it was it good. It was, yeah, well covered.
For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. punk rock band then in late primary school yeah at that point when you're kind of out there playing you're 12 13 years old were you thinking you know what i'm going to make a career out of music or at that time it's like hey this is a bit of fun um it's a good question because i didn't necessarily think at the time like the thing was i always had this idea of doing music professionally but i didn't necessarily understand what that entailed i didn't I just so for us in the little punk rock group that we had, so it was probably between the ages of maybe ten and twelve, somewhere in there. Um, it was Green Day through and through for us. That they were the, the guys, and already at that time they were fairly old, like in terms of their actual age, um, and they'd been around a while. And so I just sort of, yeah, I just music was a life thing. Um, I like something you did for a very long period of time because I watched the documentaries of them and stuff and at that point they were probably 30 something but for me at that point that was very ancient so yeah um, they'd been around a while so I sort of just saw it as a a long term investment Um, it was interesting though because the reason I liked that music I think was there was a political social and sort of personal message to it um i didn't get into necessarily a whole bunch of other sort of more simplistic punk rock where it wasn't like green day has underlying messages of things that were an issue at the time um and i really resonated towards that i think i always had a little bit of that protest type of protest in me. Was there a particular song that jumps out? Not particularly, no. It was just everything. Uh, American Idiot, the album, was fantastic. I had that at a fairly young age, like when it first sort of came out. And I honestly can't remember how old I was, but I, I really liked... It wasn't necessarily the style of music, whilst, yeah, it was awesome fun to, like, thrash around. And, like, we used to chuck the eyeliner on and put the dark... Um, um, hair colour in and it was like full on punk rock central it was like that was fun but the serious side of it was not necessarily about the punk rock music it was more the message behind it um, and I didn't really know that exactly at the time but when I think back to it it's like how did that work and then the way that I've sort of come to folk music is tracking it back from punk essentially over the years I just went further and further back in time and and then sort of picked up on where the roots of that... Because punk really was a sort of, I think, 80s and then into the 90s grunge sort of thing. Where... And I think the seven, late 70s and stuff as well, but it was the folk music of that time, essentially. Where... Because in the... 50s and 60s, or late 50s through the 60s and into the 70s, the folk music was, that was the protest. There were people marching the streets. They weren't sort of, you know, screaming American idiot lyrics. They were, you know, singing what Bob Dylan was saying. And it was a much more peaceful version in terms of what the actual sound was. Um, But it had a similar message, so I tracked it back to that. You got a strong respect and understanding for the history of music, and obviously you got a good understanding of yeah, where it's come from. You touched on that theory, music theory has been quite a challenge. What what role did school play in terms of learning music? Because they really try to give you the theory and the practical. Yeah, um, I basically just uh, faked it till I made it <laughs> in uh, in the theory side of things and I picked it up in the performance 
based. Um, I, I did manage to get a good mark on the theory writings that you have to do for the HSC in music, and I honestly can only credit that to my teacher, but more just the fact that I just managed to um, make my way through it, make up it, make it up as I went along, really. Um, and just the whole thing is you meant to analyse a song, so it was more that I just spoke from what I felt. I couldn't tell you, like, oh, yeah, that's this sort of note there that transfers into this and then moves in. That wasn't really what I was doing. I was just feeling it feeling it out. So I actually managed to do all right, just uh, wiggle my way through that. But it was the performance and, like, composition sort of side of things where I made up for that. Do you think your deep thinking that you had from a very, very young age and kind of overthinking things, did that help through school that you were able to provide a different perspective? Or was it you felt like school was a, a set box that you had to follow the path that they prescribed? I... I, I with music, I don't. I didn't have an issue with it. I, the teacher that we had, was sort of fairly free flowing in terms of creativity, um, and I think a lot of music teachers can be like that. I think they will go the other way to an extreme level, but I steer clear of those teachers because I didn't feel like they were actually teaching creativity. They were just they might as well have been maths teachers, you know. Um, so I sort of steer clear of that. Um, but pretty much through all of my schooling, all the different subjects and things, I was always, without getting in trouble, I was really trying to push the boundaries. I remember one time where it all sort of, where I realised that people weren't necessarily looking for a creative solution or a, a different way of thinking was I was in an English class and we were working on the concept of a journey and um, through literature. I, I don't even remember what book it was. I don't think I read the book. But one thing we had to do, it was just an introduction thing, just to put some decoration on the wall, was to come up with a picture that symbolised a journey. And, you know, people brought the usual, like, yellow brick road, something in the distance. And I literally went home and I just got the biggest font I could find and just wrote life on a piece of paper. And I took it in and I got in trouble for it because that's not what she had in mind. And I'll never forget the fact that at that moment I went, you know what, you're not really thinking about it. Sometimes in big, bold, capital letters, black on a white piece of paper, life, is there a bigger journey than that? Does, it, does anything symbolise a journey more than a, just life, straight up? And, yeah, to this day, I will think back to that moment and go, that's where I think that there was an issue because was she trying to teach us something or was she just trying to decorate her wall with pretty pictures? Because, to me, it seemed like that she wasn't trying to teach. And I actually had... She made me draw on that a road so that it symbolised life, uh, so that it symbolised a journey. Whereas I was pretty happy with what I'd come up with and I, and she probably just thought it was a piss poor effort. But the truth is that for me, that was the ultimate journey. So there it was. So I'll it's, never forget that. It's it was, quite prof prophetic almost for like a high school age to have that, I guess, style of thinking and the willingness to challenge what is the status quo. There's nothing I enjoyed more than challenging my teacher. And I'm not saying that I was the only one doing it. There were plenty of other people trying to forge their path I I didn't like the fact that I had to conform to what everybody else had decided was what we needed to know obviously in some aspects yeah that makes a lot of sense but um, just yeah an openness to think outside the box is something that doesn't get taught enough at school I don't think or didn't I'm not sure if it does anymore it's been a while but I, yeah can you draw parallels through you know that not wanting to conform, that kind of love for, for Green Day's messaging in their music. Has that been a part of you, do you think, throughout all of your life? Not to challenge for challenge's sake, but because you strongly believe in something, you're willing to stand up for it? Yeah, definitely. I, I went vegan while I was still playing cricket, and the boys at cricket just did not get that at all. They probably still wouldn't get that. And I, every week I got the same questions. How do you survive? What do you eat? 
and I had to, I stood there every week and I answered every single question. And basically, I have always been a little bit different. I've always thought a little bit differently, but I see it as a fun, positive thing. And I'm just happy to carve my own path. So when I was, I've just learned over time that just give it a crack with your idea and then fall back into line if that's what really has to be done in that moment. Um, like for example, with the, the life thing, I, eventually I just drew my thing on there and went, oh, well, she's a lost cause. So I just, you know, did that and chucked it up on the wall. And then I had to look at the bloody thing for the rest of the year. And it ticked me off every time I went into the class because I felt like it was fake what we were doing in there. You know, it wasn't an expression of understanding what that, because the writer could have probably was thinking out of the box as well. Whoever wrote whatever we were studying at the time. And, but she just wanted pretty pictures. So that really annoyed me. Finishing school, Jarrah, and I guess moving into the real world, world, and I'll use inverted commas there. Yeah. Did you find pressure, not just from family, but just generally to, to get a job, to go to uni, to do the nine to five? Did you feel those external pressures? Um, from some people uh, within my extended family, there were... Uh, rumblings of pressure but I sort of just I guess I would happily consider myself a lost cause in that sense like they can they can try all they want but at the end of the day unless I'm doing something that I want to be doing then I'm, I'm not going to do it um, and it's not out of disrespect for them in any way in fact I think the way that I've been brought up all of those people in my extended family have all been a, a part of how I've become who I am. So, you know, it's it's by no form of disrespect, but when I left school, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. Um, I All I knew was that I did not want to go to uni and get a hex debt. I was more than happy to go to uni and learn something, and but I did not want to go backwards in terms of I just find it a strange concept that you you work up until this point at school and then you finish school and you go, right, I'm going to have $100,000 minus against me for the next 25 years or however many. So I just went, I'm not doing that. So I got a job with my dad and it wasn't as though I was gifted a job. I, I actually had to really work um, and uh, up until last year I worked there for eight years and I never took any sort of special treatment or anything like that I, I worked as per what a normal employee would work gave him a little bit more cheek but other than that um, but then I, I decided I'd go to TAFE instead and study drafting because basically I could learn all the practical side of the architecture, which is what we were doing, um, all the technical side, um, for like hardly any money at the time. It was like five grand for the whole course. And actually they tried to change that. So I was there, I was meant to be there for four years. I was already working in the thing. So by two years in, I went to the principal person and convinced them that I already knew basically what we were doing because I was working full time doing it. And then they put me in this accelerated class and then I finished early. But just before I went over to the accelerated class, they changed it and all of a sudden they wanted to charge people $40,000 or something for the course. And they, were, they weren't going to... Basically, we'd signed up for this course at like five grand and everybody in there was either already working, like there was a police officer in there, there was a guy in jail who was there doing it as a passion of his and trying to... Um, reskill in order to better his life all of these different people and the reason they were doing it was because it was something they wanted to do and it was relatively affordable then they changed it so we just set up this little group where we just went where we will not continue to do this unless you honor the fact that you signed us up at this amount eventually that that was all good they understood that you can't just change something halfway through but um yeah, so that was that was a good experience going and doing that because I, I have a qualification of drafting and I technically know exactly what I'm doing. I can slot in 
anywhere if they need a draftsman. Um, other than that, I then sort of was pursuing my music on the side and then up until about six months ago where I decided it was that was what I was going to do as a full-time job. And throughout the years working there with your dad, what role was music playing? Was it kind of a side hobby or did you know that if, if you kept that going that eventually you'd be able to transition to yeah, kind of full-time musician? Yeah, as soon as I started working there, the, the goal was, and I was introduced as a draftsman who was trans, like transitioning into being a full-time musician. It just took a lot longer than I expected, mainly because you get used to the comforts of of life, um, earning a relatively good living for a young person and going to work and just doing your job and then going home sort of thing. So, um, But it was, yeah, it was always something that was on my mind. It was always something I wanted to do. And, yeah, eventually I just, with Jacqueline's help, just went, screw it, let's, let's give it a crack. Another decision, I guess, along those lines... Um you were, and I guess still are, quite a talented cricketer. Um, we spoke off air that um, you made your first grade debut for the Penrith Cricket Club at quite a young age. Did you set yourself like an ultimatum at some point and say, okay, it's going to be cricket or music, or did it? Did, did your decision get forced, do you think? Um, yeah, so during, since I was probably about seven, the two sort of ran parallel. I had... Um, yeah, and it's a bit like that, sort of morphing into what different people... Because at cricket, I was 100% sports-orientated. I still love... like a, it's, tra- it's a tragedy at the moment not having enough sport to watch on television. I've been having to watch some absolute garbage just to fill that time. Um, and I still love cricket with an absolute passion, and I enjoy going to the nets every now and then or having a hit or whatever. But, yeah, so they ran parallel for... A long time, and then I think, like, I sort of ru- was rushed through the grades in the um, in the grade comp, and I don't think I really understood sort of um, what I was doing or why I was doing it. Um, and I was still doing my music on the side in school as well, and like I was training three, maybe four times a week because I had juniors, grade, rep. Oh, grade was twice a week and then rep. So, like, four days a week and then playing on both days during the weekend. and It's just, it's just crazy. Like, when I think back to it, I loved every minute of playing cricket and being around a good group of people, you know, and it was a really good way to stay fit and healthy and sort of set my life on the right path. But, geez, it took up a lot of time and a lot of creative time and a lot of you know, time when you're not meant to be doing anything too structured, like the weekend, for example, is when you have time to do your own thing. And yet I was in this sort of structuring that as well. Um, Yeah, so after I sort of made it to what I'd set myself as being the top of what I wanted to achieve at that point, like obviously I had dreams of playing for New South Wales and Australia and, you know, God knows what else, but I came to the realisation that if I'd worked as hard as I had to get to this point and it didn't necessarily feel like I'd... Like, it didn't feel the way I necessarily wanted it to. Like, I didn't feel like any sort of hero. I didn't even really feel like I deserved my spot there. Um, Then did I really want to continue doing that? And I didn't like the politics and things like that either. It's it's hard in in a club, you know, there's a lot of people with all different motivations and things and I just wanted to do my own thing and I think cricket is an interesting sport because it, it's a bit of an illusion that it's a team game because the reality is that it's actually not a team game really at all. Um, obviously you have to, there's aspects of it that are team orientated but it's very much a singular game in a mask <laughs> They call it the ultimate team sport for individuals. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it, it's interesting because, yeah, there's a lot. But like, you could say things like tennis are a team sport too if you look at all the coaching staff and things like that. And cricket's a little bit the same. Once you get out there and 
it's you with the ball in your hand or you with the bat in your hand. There's not a lot of people helping you at that point. Um, so, yeah, I just decided that I wanted to go more insular and do my music stuff more. I was still doing it on the side. It was bringing me a lot of joy, so I just sort of thought, which one feels better? Do you regret looking back the the hours that went into your cricket that could have been creative time? Um, no, I I took a lot of solace from um, constantly training. Um, it was something that was very therapeutic to my brain, my mindset. Just, I think, like the whole Don Bradman hitting the golf ball up against the the tank. There was a reason he did that. Yeah, he loved you know, cricket and wanted to be good, but it's just a simple, repetitive process that doesn't require a whole lot of thinking. It just requires action and physically doing. And that was the same with me and, like, hitting the ball on the um, on the clothesline, you know? Not quite as difficult as um, <laughs> hitting it up against a water tank, but, you know, I would do that genuinely for hours. And I would enjoy every single second of it because I was just thinking about that process. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, The Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. full-time music has a dream been for you to be famous is that a, an allure for you to, to be in the bright lights of global travel playing music in front of tens of thousands of people I think I have to be realistic about my genre of music is not necessarily a genre where it would become a bright lights sort of thing um, I my overall goal is to play music to as many people as I can write songs that have meaning for what the situations are in life for people and they can interpret their own things from that. Um, but it's also to earn a living that is very sustainable and I can sort of, you know, carve my place in the world without struggling too much. But I don't necessarily need to become, you know, Ed Sheeran. Because there's just you lose a lot of the charm of being a creative, I feel like, at that point. And like I, I read a lot of memoirs and a lot of music history um, from about the 50s to now. And the times when it gets ugly for an individual is always when politics and money come together in the sense of politics within your group or within your management and that's where it starts to get rough um, I think there's a sweet spot just before that where you earn good money you go around you're playing your own songs I don't want to be a covers artist I, I've also set myself a like about a 10 year window that if by 35 I'm still playing covers in pubs or you know that's it I'm drafting because I feel as though there's a, whilst some people might absolutely love that, but for me it would be absolutely tragic to have that as my, I don't want to be that 55 year old guy sitting in a, in a bar with four people strumming them out thinking, you know, that that's what he has to do. I don't want to be like that. So I've set myself that window and yeah, hopefully by that point I'll be, sort of have a steady income, be able to play gigs to maybe, I don't know, anywhere up to a couple of thousand people. I would never really want to do massive shows. I think they lose their their charm. I think somewhere like the Enmore Theatre is about as big as I'd ever want to play a gig to. 
that sort of theatre size is really nice. Um, yeah, once you go past that, you just lose a lot of connectivity with what you're doing and with the people around you as well. So I think, yeah. So that's sort of my, it's a, a long-winded answer, but that's sort of my thought processes is that I don't necessarily want to be photographed in the streets. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to be that sort of famous. I don't think my music is that sort of um, style anyway. And... I just want to be realistic and earn a good living and play to people who are like-minded and enjoy the music and, yeah, just get that ticking over. Your Spotify account describes Jarrah's music is comprised of deeply poetic lyricism, sharp cultural, social and environmental commentary. Where does this inspiration for, for your songs come from? It varies. Sometimes I have no inspiration and I just feel like a blob. Um, that happens frequently. When I do write a song, I'm often like critiquing it as I go. So sometimes I'll get like a few lines in and go, no, that's not what I had in mind. Usually it's got to be something that, that hits me. Um, I wrote a song about, I had four family members who were ill at the same time, all looking fairly dire and all of them came through with the goods. So that's great. But at the time, I'd never experienced any tragedy in my life. I still haven't really. I've um, only recently have I witnessed any sort of tragedy within my family, and I still don't know how I'll deal with it on a like a really close scale. Um, so I wrote a song about that, and that's borrowed time. It's on up there on Spotify. That things like that, and then things that I feel are and injustice, I yeah write about that as well. Lots of government things. Uh, I get quite frustrated with just ignorance and things like that among among sort of leadership and and whatnot. But I don't. The songs often start out in a negative space, like as in that'll be the initial. Oh, I need to get this down on paper. But 99.9% of the time, by the chorus, it'll be relatively upbeat and um, and celebratory, I guess. So, for example, in that Borrowed Time song, it, it talks about some pretty miserable stuff, like, like stones being washed to the ocean, we are all enslaved by time. You know, it's pretty miserable. But then the chorus is, now I know why they say seize the day. Tomorrow's no guarantee. Lead a happy peaceful life you know um, share actually changes share a moment um, lead a peaceful life we're living on borrowed time and it's like a, a little bit of an uplifter um, that's what I found listening to that song Jarrah was there was a quite a, an uplifting vibe through the song and like you say some of the lyrics are quite confronting when you stop and listen did you deliberately want to have a tone of, of positivity with the song uh the truth is that most, I, a lot of songwriters that I listen to say the same thing, and that's that you're really just an antenna for whatever gets thrown your way. Um, I don't necessarily craft it in any certain way. It's sort of just what comes. But in that case, um, it started off, I was very miserable. And it's like a basically over the course of writing the song, I sort of picked up and went, you know what? It's okay, that's what makes life beautiful. And um, Yeah, I was just listening to a song yesterday actually by um, Jason Isbell, um, an Americana artist. And he has his, his best song by a long shot, in my opinion, is, um, I think it's called If We Were Vampires. And it's one of the lines in there, essentially it's saying that it's beautiful that we die because... One of the lines is something along the lines of, if we were vampires and we lived forever, then I wouldn't feel the need to hold your hand or I wouldn't feel the need to do this, you know, sort of certain thing. And I guess that is what ended up coming with that Borrowed Time song as well, where I was like, well, it's it sucks, but isn't that what makes it beautiful to cherish those moments as well? Fear does that kind of fear of death does that prompt you to, to, to keep things moving forward in life? It does now. It used to just scare me into um, into not doing, wanting to do anything. Um, 
And I think it's a good thing to, to jump on and grab and channel that fear of, of death and the unknown to be, while we're here, let's, let's give it a crack, let's do this. Um, and I also try not to think way into the future, like sort of just about 10 years is about it for me. That's about as far as I want to go just at this point because I think there's a, there's a little bit of a trap of society at the moment of falling into, oh, when I retire or, oh, when this happens, you know. Chances are you might, like, this, who knows, like, we're within this COVID situation at the moment without being negative about it. The truth is this hasn't been that bad of a pandemic. And if there's bigger pandemics, then there's going to be bigger issues. So who knows? And, yeah, my whole thing, like, the super companies, for example, the banks, they'll all sell you the idea that, oh, when you retire, you do this, or when you get to this point in life, you do that. And I'm just saying give it a crack as soon as you can. If you feel like you're in the position or you want to do it, follow that, that bliss and give it a crack because um, who knows? Who knows? It's a good segue into the next point. You, As we said, you recently broke free of that nine to five. You're, you're chasing your dreams and you're, you're living in a bus which you... Um, you, you built it yourself uh, from, from scratch. Yep. What has that change in lifestyle meant for you, Jarrah? It's been liberating on a few different levels. One is that it's taught me that everything that we're sort of told we have to do in, in life or has been done before in a certain way isn't necessarily the only option. I think... It's beautiful to live simply. I had a lot of music gear, just stacks of guitars and things that I just didn't need and I just sold them all off. I've only down to just a few different options now. And even like clothing, I had way too much and I've just culled it all down and just basically everything fits within this this bus. Um, and it feels great. Things that I thought were necessary aren't necessary. Um, and it... Yeah, it wakes you up to the rest of the different parts of life and what's really necessary and, and what's not. So, yeah, it's it's been very liberating on that. It's We haven't really officially been able to start doing the living on the road thing, so I'm not exactly sure uh, what to expect. We went away a little bit last year. and I had a few, like, teething issues with it, just getting used to it. I think that'll be the, the case again, but I'm just slowly building my way into life without necessarily a set base, other than the bus, obviously. Um, but it's really exciting, and I think it's taught me that by pushing yourself into a different comfort zone, it, it can really help as well. Um, yeah, and it's awesome to have like a project that you can just get away from so with music sometimes you can just have an idea in your head or whatever and it just keeps spiraling around and it just gets a bit out of like you just you've you've lost your creativity in that moment and there's nothing I enjoy more now than going and doing some construction which is like hitting the ball like we were talking before where whilst yes you have to think about your technique because obviously you don't want to cut your hand off really it's more about an action and doing it and building it than it is about overthinking it. So, um, yeah, that's my new form of hitting a ball in a sock, basically, or in a stocking. Has your your self-awareness, have you had that, do you think, since a young age? Um, you talk about, you know, knowing where you get your energy from and feeling liberated. Is that something you, you, you take back to your childhood or it's more mean, I guess, a recent discovery? Um, I think without identifying it, I probably did a little bit of that from a young age I've always been able to withdraw myself from a situation and think about what the effects of that situation are going to have um, like when I was very very little I was walking at a very young age and like I but I would never like grab something sharp or I, I'd literally stand there and go no 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 like I'd, I'd just know that that wasn't a good idea and I think in hindsight, that was me sort of stepping back and going, now, what could happen from that situation? And whilst, yes, that's overthinking a situation and sometimes it's best to obviously not grab something too sharp, but do 
an action and understand the issue that came from that. Um, I think a consciousness of what you're doing is important. So, yeah, I guess for a long time I've been able to do that, but it's more just sticking to my guns and doing what I feel like I want to do. However, there are certain topics that that doesn't necessarily work for for me, and they're, they're more like my trigger topics, you know, the, the things that I can't seem to get out of that routine for, and that's what I everybody or continues to work on is working out how to handle those particular things, you know. You mentioned, Jarrah, earlier on, um, a challenge for you has been living with a, a crippling anxiety from a young age. Yeah. What role did music play for you in... Was it an escape? Was it an outlet? It's a good outlet. Definitely a good outlet. Um, it takes your thoughts away from... And this is the thing. That's what I was saying about, like, it might start off with a negative, but sort of over that period of time, there's a, there's a happiness that comes into the songwriting process because it's like, well, how fun is this? Like, I've just come up with something that no one's ever come up with it in that exact way before and like I'm just it's like mining you never know what you're going to find and um, yeah that sort of makes a makes it a fairly therapeutic process I think that in, if you're having a severe panic attack though it might be that someone might suggest why don't you just go and play some guitar that usually calms you down but that won't work I know from experience that I'll just get the shits with the guitar and just be disappointed in that too, you know. Um, you've got to work it out from a, in a different way. But there's definitely, with like social anxieties, so for example, well not social anxieties necessarily, but global anxieties like, for example, writing a song about um, the shootings in Las Vegas a few years ago and things like that. That helps me deal with it, definitely. Um, but I don't know if that's anxieties as much as it is events that have, you know, stirred an emotion within me. But it's very therapeutic in that sense. But sort of the more personal anxieties that I have, I don't know whether it's actually a, a solution for that or a, a medication for that, I guess. Are there certain triggers for panic attacks or your, your anxiety? Um, there have been they 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 always change over time. Um, yeah, um, health has always been one that has triggered me. Like just general um, sort of um, yeah, well being stuff. But um, that's one that's sort of stuck fairly fairly significantly throughout my whole life. But um, things have come and gone. I remember like one time I. And this is like a really basic example, but and it's a fear that lots of people have, but there was this boot out the front of my house and a spider climbed out of it just once. I, I literally would carry spiders before that and about six weeks later I'd be able to carry a spider outside again and I've never had an issue. But for that six-month period, I was beside myself with fear of, like I had arachnophobia for that space of time. And it's not always logical. It can be triggered by a thing like that where it just caught me off guard. Maybe I was feeling a bit anxious anyway and then that just triggered me or whatever. But yeah, and then all of a sudden there it goes. It's gone and like I'm back to, you know, being the guy to carry out the spider outside. So I don't know. I, it, it always varies, but yeah. Have you taken comfort in... I guess society's heightened focus now on mental health and overall well-being. Yeah, um, I think it's really good. And yeah, the fact that you know, people are comfortable to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I, I've always said, though, that I haven't had an issue. Um, I, I said this in some interview um, that I did the other day, um, that I've never had an issue with expressing it because my family have always been really supportive of that. Um, and all my friends, anyone I've ever mentioned it to, I've never had a bad reaction like, oh, what are you doing? You know, um, we even had um, Gus Warland come into the cricket club while I was still there and he was doing like that um, talking with your mates sort of thing and it was like a boys only night and, and I was the first one that, like, he was sort of like, does anyone have any stories about mental health? And I put my hand up and I was the first one to just, and I just let it all out in front of probably a hundred blokes 
um, who I'd known for years. Some of them, they'd known me since I was 13 and I was probably 20-something at this stage. And it floored some people. Like, they had no idea. And they'd come up to me after and say, oh, I'm sorry, I had no idea if there's anything I can ever do to help. But I didn't have one bad reaction. Um, and I don't think I ever will because the thing is that I'm only really going to tell the people that I feel can be of some form of support. Um, so I've never really had that negative connotation. Jared, do you believe that in life that you find yourself or that you create yourself and in terms of is there a path laid out for you or do you have to, every decision you make is forming a path? That's a good question. I was thinking about that the other day. Um, I think, I don't think there's a path laid out. I think there's a path of least resistance within following what feels good. I think we get very caught up on what other people think is good for us. I think every person is going to be very different, but I don't think, like if you, for example, if you get born into a family where both parents are lawyers, a lot of people would say that your path was to be a lawyer. It's completely not true. I, and I, also, I think that some people are, are born a certain way. Like I was obviously born fairly with a fairly active mind to analyse things. But I've crafted and shaped that into a way where it's not a debilitating thing for me. You know, it, can, it has led to a positive thing. Um, yeah so I, I think it's a combination of the two I definitely don't think that there's just a path that is exactly laid out I think it's all about yeah, following that that bliss and, and bringing things into your life that you want there um, and believing things in your mind that you want to come to fruition you know like um, yeah, I just think that you can create your own path of least resistance through through doing that and Jared, do you have any advice for for people one who are, you know forging a, a career in music, but also two people who might be doing it a bit tough in terms of their mental well being? In terms of the mental well being, that for me has always been talking to other people, whether it's uh, whether it's family members. Like I was really fortunate to have really supportive family members. I think now a lot more family members are going to be supportive. Um, in this current time period but I think if you don't know of anybody who you think would be supportive in that find somebody whether you have to pay them or not um, because it, it does help um, just have a couple of techniques or someone to bounce ideas off or whatever so I think that is the main thing is just keep talking to people and don't go too insular with the whole mental health thing um, in terms of music, I think I'm still trying to pave my way as well. So if you have any tips, uh, anybody has any tips, I'm more than willing to accept those tips. But I, my thing is just have fun, I guess. Yeah, I think I, I tend to sometimes overthink that process as well and, and forget to have that just fun and enjoy it. But um, yeah, I guess that it's a very cliche answer, but... Yeah, as I said, I'm learning the other stuff as well. I'm still actively searching for that one sort of mentor who just goes, I did it that way, terrible way to do it, do it this way or whatever. So I'm still just feeling my way there a bit, but yeah. And Jerry, how do people find out more and, and listen to, to some of the great music you're putting out, you know, website, Facebook, Spotify? Yeah, so website is um, jarramusic.com.au. Um, that'll then have the links to everything um, but I mainly use the Instagram Jarrah underscore music and on Spotify the best way to find me is to search Jarrah and then one of the song names so for example Shackles or Borrowed Time um, only because there's there's a um, imposter Jarrah who releases electronic dance music um, so you just might stumble across that and it's not great, so. Jarrah, a huge, huge thanks for an open and honest chat um, on the Passion and Perspective podcast. What, what's up next for you? What, what's the next, I guess, six to 12 months have in store for you? Um, first goal is to drive somewhere 
um, probably mid-June. We're just sort of playing it by ear a bit. It's a little bit clouded as to whether you're allowed to just cruise along and live in a bus at the moment. Um, I'm sure, I know some people are doing it, other people aren't, so we'll just sort of cruise into that slowly. Um, then I was meant to be on, like, doing a lot of touring. Like, I was meant to be on tour right now for, like, three months going up the coast. And the idea is that we're going to be in warm places during winter and cold places during summer or just keeping that sort of idea. So, yeah, just cruising around, releasing music. I've got a couple of songs that are sort of sitting there waiting to, to go, a couple, one in mastering. Um, and then, yeah, I, I guess just go where the road takes us. I want to make new connections and meet new people um, within the music industry to then you know, learn more and pursue new opportunities and things. So I definitely want to spend a bit of time up near Byron, as I mentioned earlier on to you, um, pre-podcast. And those sort of community spaces where there's a lot of creativity. I think the mountains is very good for that as well. Like, I think we're pretty lucky to have grown up in an area that offers so much creativity um, and beautiful inspiration and things like that. But yeah, I want to spread my wings a little bit and find new chunks of creativity in different places. Jared, again, a big, big thank you, mate, and wishing you all the best. No worries. Thanks again for having me. Really enjoyed it. Good to have a chat. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by The Western Weekender.